Welcome to the Regista Room, the podcast where soccer goes off field. Here's your host, Paul Varian. Welcome friends, or as I like to call listeners now to this podcast, Regista Rumours. It's great to have you joining me for this third episode of the Regista Room, where amateur soccer goes off field. I hope you enjoyed last week's show. It's focused on innovation and how the pandemic's really pushed amateur soccer organisations to embrace innovation and the risk that goes with it more strongly than they have in the past, often with surprisingly good results, as we found out. The theme of this episode's podcast is building board leaders, and it coincides nicely with the release of Capitalist Consulting's latest sport business e-tutorial on running great sport board meetings. Now, if you haven't seen the trailer for this latest e-tutorial, check it out now at capitalistlearning.com. Simply scroll down the video section and click on the trailer. You're going to love it because the whole tra- the whole tutorial, should I say, centers around a simulated sport board meeting in which I play eight different characters, both board members and staff. Needless to say, the board screws up mightily in the meeting and I use their blunders to illustrate where boards commonly go wrong when they're in meetings and what they should change and what good meetings ultimately look like. Now, I can tell you, I had a lot of fun making this one and you're going to have a good laugh watching it too. So many people have already reached out to me saying, Paul, that's my board. But behind the fun and games of it all, there is important and compelling learning in it that your board should watch every year as part of their onboarding or annual professional development program. As we're going to hear today from our guests, great boards aren't so because of laws, policies and budgets, but instead because of how sport board members interact with each other. Lawyers will tell you boards are legal institutions, and legally speaking they are, but I'd argue that at the end of the day, they're really just groups of people. How these people act with each other, particularly when they don't agree, separates high-functioning sport boards from dysfunctional ones. I'm still referring to the COVID-19 pandemic a lot when I talk about sport development these days. And no, that's not some sad, sadistic attempt to draw us back into it, God willing, these pandemic times are behind us. But I remain fascinated about the impact the pandemic has had on amateur soccer, not just from a negative standpoint, but from a positive standpoint too. Indeed, the more the dust settles in all of this, the more I'm seeing that the pandemic has made the amateur soccer system stronger through challenges that it has non-negotiably had to face as much as what it's chosen to do. And the boardroom is another prime example of this. Now, yes, I've heard some stories where poor boards have managed the pandemic badly and sadly chosen to beat down on their management personnel in a blame game approach to sidestepping the accountability that phenomena like this pandemic bring to the boardroom. Regrettably, these stories have led to the departure of some executive directors and directors of coaching, not only from the club, but regrettably from the whole industry. Soccer entirely they've left. Yes, many great coach and staff leaders were simply crushed by bad boards. And this is unforgivable, really. We must not let any crisis flush great leadership out of the system. But in spite of these sad stories, I've actually heard more great ones. In managing this crisis, amateur soccer boards and management staff have often united together really well to collectively manage through. And this has led to mutual trust and strength in teamwork. And I've been told 
a greater appreciation from boards of exactly what their staff do, because they've had to get into the weeds, I guess, alongside them through being part of COVID task forces or crisis management committees and such. It'll be important for boards to reassume their governing role and redraw the bright red line between governance and operations, which they should not fall below, as we return to some sense of post-pandemic normality. But even when they do return, they should return with a stronger relationship built between board and staff, particularly with respect to trust, and that's got to be a good thing. Furthermore, this pandemic's really shown how important it is to have a good board that actually does the job it's supposed to do. Managing risk, particularly financial risk, tending to external relations, crisis management communications, and overall organizational leadership, they became things that boards had to do to keep the organization afloat and survive. And it became easy to focus on these things because the common distraction for directors of amateur soccer boards, which is usually games, tournaments, and the actual soccer programs, well, that became heavily limited or even completely removed at times during the pandemic. There was no soccer, so they had to focus on non-soccer stuff, which, by the way, is their role all of the time anyway. Try to tell them that if you can. Before the pandemic, it was a popular blood sport to take shots at amateur soccer boards of directors. Boards would regularly get written off as incompetent or self-interested fools, and the very notion of the institution of a board of directors governing a club actually was routinely questioned, particularly by owners of private soccer academies. But the pandemic has shown why a board is necessary and what it can do if it chooses to do its job and focus on its role. Did I say that clearly enough? At the end of the day, pandemic or no pandemic, if you're a soccer organization with statutory standing, you probably have to have a board. You do if you're a private corporation. And if you're a not-for-profit corporation or society or statutory equivalent, you probably have to elect that board from your membership. So rather than fighting it or complaining about it, how about dealing with it? How about we stop battling the idea of a board and move to the notion of making your board better? And how about taking a long game approach to this? How about making your board a priority? No, really, a genuine priority. That means committing resources to its development and the people who serve on it. It means taking a more robust approach to sourcing who will serve on it and what skills they bring and how diverse the group is. And it absolutely means paying particular attention to your board chair, who's often the organization's president, and ensuring they know their role, focus on the right things, and are there for the right reasons. It means making the boardroom a pleasure and a privilege to be in, not a prison cell where people are just doing time, praying for the end of their terms. You see, good boards don't just happen. And great ones take work and a true understanding of the importance of the organization and an ongoing defined commitment to making and keeping them great. Is this your organization? Is this your approach? I know what I've said sounds like pie in the sky and somewhat idealistic. Heard it all before, Paul, I hear some of you saying. But you know, it's not BS pie in the sky. It can be done. And on this episode of The Regist Room, we're going to give you some important pointers to show you how to build board leaders and ultimately a great board that stays that way over time. Coming up after the break, I speak with two fantastic sport board leaders, 
both of whom have walked the walk on board leadership and development in many amateur sport organisations, including soccer associations. When we return on the register room, where amateur soccer goes off field. Are you an amateur sport leader looking for quality professional development? If so, your search is over. Introducing Capitalist Consulting's new sport business tutorial series. We'll teach you what you need to do to run your club better. These tutorials target the key areas of sport business. Governance, risk, planning, marketing, technical oversight, sponsorship, and modern volunteerism. Access and enjoy these tutorials when you want and where you want. Go to capitaslearning.com and get learning with me today. Do you have a story to tell? The Regista Room is built on real-world stories and experiences from amateur soccer clubs everywhere that we can explore, discuss, and learn from. Have you innovated a solution to a problem, challenged the norm, tried something different, thought outside the box, or taken a risk, and it's paid off? If so, we want to hear from you on the Regista Room. Contact us today with your story at content at registaroom.com and let's better the game with our shared soccer experiences. Welcome back to the Regista Room where amateur soccer goes off field. As always, Paul Varian here, your host. So, we know working with boards in amateur soccer can be hard. There are undeniable challenges. Well, like what, I hear you ask? Well, here's a few that have been mentioned to me recently. Time and capacity, says Ryan Jones in Toronto. Yeah, well, no argument there, Ryan. So maybe combat this by being really stingy with board time. Protect this commodity well, it's very valuable. Does this really need to be in the boardroom? It's a great question. Good boards ask themselves for anything that's brought in. Make sure you really defend your board time so that it's not wasted. It's the most important component of capacity you have. Boards feeling bored and getting operational at odd times in weird ways for unknown reasons, says Ryan Mendonca near the Michigan border. I love that comment because the notion that if you don't keep your boards busy with strategic matters, then they'll gravitate back to operations is completely true. Bringing your board up above the bright red line, it's as much about what you now get them to do above the bright red line as, as it is about stopping from what they did before, the operational stuff that they did before. And you've got to do the two together if the board's going to properly graduate into a governing role. What do they do now as well as what do they not do anymore? Great comment, Ryan. Thanks so much. I hope all is well down near the border. Explaining to non-soccer people what development models and resources are required for the best interest of player development. As such, change is very so slow, says Kurt Thiessen over on the West Coast. Yes, Kurt, that's absolutely true. Unfortunately, it's an occupational hazard of being a technical soccer person in a soccer boardroom. A lot of the time, you know, your time is involved in explaining things to non-technical people so that they can make the right decisions. And you can't really avoid having to do this. But the only thing I'd say is the level of detail to which you're expected to go in these explanations, you have a right to draw a line there. Strategic technical matters, for sure, they belong in the boardroom. But getting into granular matters of player development, I'd argue it's not the best use of board time. And if you're at the point where, you know, it gets to the point where your board needs to just trust your skills on some matters. You know, if it's just an enthusiastic or curious board member asking about step overs or cuts, take it offline with them for a coffee or beverage of your choice after the board meeting. Thanks for those great comments, folks. Keep them coming on any off-field amateur soccer matter you may have. 
by dropping me an email at comments at registerroom.com. So, let's get to our first guest. Leslie Blythe is arguably one of the most respected and effective board leaders in the whole of Canadian soccer, but you wouldn't know it to meet her. A career teacher by trade, when you meet Leslie, you see a humble, happy and affable person who always has a smile on her face and has a remarkable ability to find the good in everything, no matter how crap it is. And it's through this crucial element of her leadership that she's quietly but effectively risen to lead the largest and most important soccer organisations in the province of Saskatchewan, in central Canada. Her soccer leadership career started through her local soccer association in Regina, which is the capital of Saskatchewan, and then progressed to election to the board in the provincial soccer governing body, Saskatchewan Soccer, which she ultimately then chaired. And recently she joined the board, and yes, you've guessed it, ended up chairing it, of SASC Sport, which is the government agency that funds and leads the entire sports sector in Saskatchewan. She now busies herself with major sports events such as the Saskatchewan Special Olympics Winter Games and the upcoming Saskatchewan Winter Games. I first met Leslie when doing some work for Saskatchewan Soccer when she was chair of the board. And the association was having some difficulties at the time. It was actually embroiled in some legal battles with a large affiliate member. And I was running a a workshop for the board and brainstorming with them what the organisation needed to do to improve its member relations. And Leslie quietly and confidently said, we need to constantly practice and promote basic collegiality. And she said this, as I said, quietly, but with great determination and ultimate grace. And that sums up Leslie. She has an innate ability to lead the room without really trying to, or so it seems, through just fundamentally being good, respectful, and a great person. Listen carefully to how she does it. Leslie Blythe, welcome to the Regista Room. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, it's wonderful to have you on. And and uh, um, uh, I, I, I sit and I think back, Leslie, about you know the, the times I've seen you in action chairing chairing a board and um it's it's a wonderful thing to see um I'll call it effortless chairmanship I think you have a wonderful wonderful ability to lead almost by example and and I'm really excited to have you on today because as you know this is part of a a themed episode of the register room that looks at building board leaders but you can't really do that without looking at I I think the chair of the board and the pivotal role that they that, that they that they play so I'm going to start with a big honking question. What's the secret to good board chairmanship? Well, I don't know that if it's a secret so much as that you have to recognize that you're not going in with your own plan and your own kind of uh, a script of what you want to happen. You're going in to, to lead a group of individuals who are just as passionate as you are um, about whatever you know, board you're chairing. And so in our case, it's soccer. And so you're just as passionate as everybody else about soccer, but what they're looking you to do is to try to help them all stay on the right path, help them make sure that the, the strategic plan that you have in place continues to roll forward. So they're not looking for you to tell them what to do and what to think and how to think. But on the other hand, you're just helping them in their roles and helping them be successful. So I hear a lot of humility in what you're saying there. So it's it's not really about you sort of grabbing the sword and charging over the hill and attack, attack, you know, follow me. I'm the I'm the leader, don't you know? It's really about 
almost facilitating and getting the, the, the best out of your board? Is that what I'm hearing you say? I would absolutely say so, because I think if we've all been involved in organizations where a chair comes in with their agenda, and as you said, they pick up the sword in there, this is my way and this is the way we're going. And ultimately, they're one and done. And they're not going to achieve their agenda. They're not going to get everybody on the same page. They're not going to get people driving in their direction. So those individuals end up end up being a one and done. And it and it doesn't even help them achieve what they're looking for, nor does it help their organization move forward. You've you've chaired some very big, powerful boards in 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 certainly Saskatchewan sport, in, in Sask board and, and 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 Saskatchewan soccer, which is, I think, if not the biggest PSO, then pretty close to the biggest provincial sport organization, right? Um, How did you find chairing SASC Sport, which is a pan-sport organization, obviously with a very strong link to government, compared to a single sport governing body? I think the biggest difference for me was was the way the boards were structured. In in our provincial sport organization of soccer, we were a governance board. And so we were really in charge of that strategic plan. And our job was to, to try and get things in place so that the staff could really take that strategic plan and, and and hit all those success markers you were trying. Where Sask Sport still um, was very much an operational board and it's still very tied to government. So your funding and your mandate is very different than just a, a, a single sport organization. You know, how do you deal with a board that doesn't agree, where there's conflict or where things can get very personally uncomfortable? What do you think the role of the chair is in those instances? I think when you know that the agenda coming forward is something that's going to uh, see individuals, you know, kind of their, I guess their backs get up or they have a personal um, connection to, you have to start the meeting by reminding everybody why we're here, because you're here as a provincial sport organization. You're not here representing this more member organization or this group, even though you may have had personal ties to it. And so you have to reiterate the purpose of the board. You're here representing the province, the organization, not one member organization group and and you have to make sure that as a board chair you're very comfortable in your your you know your conflict uh conflict of interest uh so that you can tell people ahead of time and set your board up for success as opposed to waiting until there you know is chaos and then having to stop all the conversations so allow everybody the opportunity to date to declare a conflict and then they can step out of the conversation so that you don't head down that path that's going to cause um you know more turmoil down the road I see some chairs, um, when they get into the business of a board meeting, forget they're the chair and, and behave like a like a sort of a regular director sometimes. But you were always deafening by your silence, Leslie. <laughs> was that deliberate or, or was that just the sort of personality you have? Or, or yeah, how, how, I think how that was, yeah. Definitely, I wouldn't tell you that that's deliberate. It was learned. Um, because during my course of time uh, being involved in sport organizations, starting as an operational board, very passionate about certain things, always feeling like I had that opportunity to share my opinion and I needed to tell you what to think. And, and I found that if the, if the chair overtook those meetings, you felt as a board member that you're not, you didn't have a chance to say anything. 100%. So if the chair takes on that role of, this is my point of view, you all need to hear it. And now what do you have to say? You stifle conversation. So that's not your job as chair. Your job as chair is to allow your board members to have conversation for you to mediate or to moderate it so that you stay 
within the lanes that that you are provided as board members. Yeah, and, and you accidentally automatically bias the conversation, don't you? I've seen some chairs say, okay, the next agenda on the the next item on the agenda is this. My personal opinion is before it's even gone out for discussion. So the chairs already put a big opinion. And whether you like it or not, the chair does have a big voice if they choose to use it. So you may, particularly for shyer people, who people who don't like to be sort of bombastic in their nature, that, that impacts them, doesn't it, as to how they're going to speak, if at all? Well, absolutely. And I think it also, sometimes that drives conversation outside your board table. So if you've worked awfully hard to make sure that all those conversations stay at the board table where everybody is present, where we all hear all sides of the conversation, if you as a chair come out stating your opinion and trying to drive the direction of the conversation, in the end, it it board members may take that conversation outside, and then that's where you have that breakdown in communication. Yes, the, the famous parking lot board meeting after the board meeting, right? We've all seen them, people standing around oh, in cars. Yeah. Let's talk about the relationship that you think should exist between the chair and the CEO or the executive director or whoever the, I guess, the head of staff is for, for, for an organization in sport. How, what do you think is the ideal relationship and how often should they communicate on, on what in your mind? Well, uh, I guess for me, it was different in the different roles with the provincial sport organization with one, one sport in one direction. Um, it's important that you have a good conversation with the executive director so that you're comfortable to, to talk to them about issues coming up or things that you've seen, or maybe there's things that have happened that you need to, you know, get your executive director back on track as far as the information that's delivered to the board. So, because you want the board to make sure they recognize the executive director as their one and only employee, that this is the individual who's going to report to them, going to provide them the information. And you want that trust relationship. So you've got to make sure that you have that relationship with your executive director so that that's the feeling that exists within the board table. Because if there's animosity or or uh, a sense of you know uh, distrust between you and your executive director or CEO, that, that definitely permeates the boardroom. And so if you and your executive director aren't on the same way, like it's hard to get your board members to, you know, to buy into what's, what's being delivered at that table. When I've been a CEO of a sport organization, success I've had was very much down to a strong relationship with my chair. And when I wasn't effective, it was down to a bad relationship with the chair. I mean, it, I learned very quickly that among other things, that's, you've got to have a position of mutual trust and respect with that person. And I often ended up choosing to go to that person for advice, not because I felt I had to, but I really wanted the opinion of that person. And I think that those two key elements you talked about was respect and trust, because it has to go both ways. Like the executive director has to trust um, that the chair is going to keep the meeting on track, is going to you know, stop any questions that are offside or that are outside the realm of the board uh, the board member's business so that you don't get into the operational and you don't start getting those board meetings off off track. So you have to have the trust that the chair is going to do that at your board table, um, but also that things that you say outside the board table between you and your executive director stay between the two of you. It's not public fodder. It's not fodder for the board members. It's conversations between the two of you. So you've got to have that trust that that those conversations stay between the two of you. 100%. How much do you think courage is important in good chairmanship because you know i've seen boards where particularly there's a couple of type a people in the boardroom who like the sound of their own voice and like to engage in big speeches 
um, and won't shut up, quite frankly. <laughs> yeah. That, that it takes the chair to have to literally interrupt and say, okay, we've we've heard from you. I want to hear from David over there or from or from Amanda over here or whoever it might be. That that's personally not comfortable for a lot of people to actually shut someone down. How courageous. And, and I would, yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say, and if you can't do that, if you're not willing um to to be in control of the meeting and to to recognize when individuals are offside or long-winded or, I mean, you know, I, I love those conversations when a board member says, yes, I agree with everything that's been said around the table. And, and then they reiterated all of it. And it's like, no, we don't have another 20 minutes for you to, you know, espouse or regurgitate everything that's been said. You just said you agreed with it. So done. Like, and as a chair, you have to continue that. Otherwise board meetings become, you know, monotonous. People don't attend um, to the business. You, you know, people get sidetracked and you're right. You can have somebody who becomes a, a grand showman that, you know, you have to be able to read your board and you have to be able to read your agenda ahead of time because there's certain items that will get people talking and you need to know ahead of time and, and be willing to step in and say, you know, yes, that happened when you were with that organization, but that's not who you represent. Let's move forward. I love what you said there, Leslie, about sort of respect for board time. I think it's often overlooked. Um, Every minute of board time is a valuable commodity and should be used properly. And sometimes I think we're a little loosey-goosey. We're just letting conversations go off into sidebars. And, and all of a sudden, the meeting that should be two hours is four hours plus. And I'm sorry, I don't see board meetings that are effective when they get that long. Well, I would agree with you. And, and, and that comes down to the committee work as well, because if the committee work is going to be presented at the table and everyone around the board is going to pick it apart and ask more questions, it's like, why don't you become a part of that committee? The committee has already done the work. They've done the research. They've made a decision. This is their decision they're bringing to us. We're here for just oversight. We're not here to, to redo the entire meeting. And again, you have to set that tone with your board and you have to trust in the chairs of those committees. And that's that's one of your jobs. And one of the jobs of your CEO is to make sure the work done in committee is done effectively and done done properly. So when it comes to the board table, we're not rehashing every line item. 100%. Final question for you, Leslie. A lot of chairs are new. Um, it's their first time leading a board. And in some situations where the president is elected directly off the membership as president, sometimes they come into the boardroom not even having been on a board before. And suddenly they're they're running the board, which to me is, is ludicrous. But that's how some bylaws are structured, as you well know. Yeah. What advice would you have for somebody taking over a board as chair for the first time? I would, first of all, make sure that I've at least, you know, done my homework and read some of the minutes so that I know what the format of the minutes are, what the format of the meetings are, how how is it gone from there? And then you're going to have to do your best to introduce yourself to this group, especially if you come as the newbie and and you've got, you know, the board that's already been there. And as you said, you're elected from the outside. That, you know, it it can really cause, you know, I imagine they're all looking at you wondering, oh, what's, what's your mandate? What's your thought? Where are you driving us? And so I think, you know, if that's the scenario, I would suggest that the first thing you need to do is, is to have a little bit of team building and find out, get them to, to bring you up to speed and get them to share with you what you've done so far and what's the strategic plan and what are our committees. And, and before you you know, go through all the mandates or, you know, review all the committee structures, get them to tell you, get a feel for how they've been operating 
Because if you're going to come in the first time and you're going to operate by the book that exists, a set of policies, that the policies might exist, but that might not be how they're operating. They might not have operated that way for a long time. Just the policies were there because they needed to be in, but that's not how they do business. So you have to find that out. Like it, it, It's one thing to, to read a set of policies, but it's another one to see them in operation because some of them aren't the same. Yeah. And, and speaking of policies and, you know, I'll ask you one final question. How much, what, what is the role of the chair in driving values and identity and ethics in the organization? It's becoming, it's becoming popular, but I don't mean that in a flippant way. I mean, I think we're starting to understand now how important these, these terms are and how much they drive what people choose to do rather than what they're told to do. How much do you think that starts in the boardroom and what's the chair's role in it? From my experience, you can really see the difference between uh, when a chair comes in and they've, they've read the mission statement and the value statement of the organization and the way they conduct themselves are you know, kind of in accordance to what exists there, as opposed to somebody who comes in and wants to turn the page or create something new right away. And it's, it's you know, if you have a two-year term or a three-year term, your first year really is about, you know, learning, learning your role and uh, learning what your members are like and how the organization is structured. And, and if you find that you guys have, you know, that organization is kind of veered away from what's written down in policy, especially if you're coming in with fresh eyes, if you come in with those fresh eyes and, and the vision statement is clearly written, but that isn't how we conduct ourselves in the board table, then your job as chair would be to slowly bring that back. Maybe you're going to print it on the agenda at the beginning of every meeting. Maybe you're going to revisit it before you start your meeting, just to bring everybody back to the point where we're at. And eventually somebody might say to you, but this isn't how we do business. Okay, well, if this isn't our vision, if this isn't where we're going, then maybe what we need to do is organize, you know, an opportunity, bring a consultant in. We need to sit down and have a brainstorm session because if this isn't our vision, what is our vision? Because we need to all be going in the same direction. We're not going to hit any kind of strategic plan and we're not going to be any kind of success if we're not all driving in the same direction yeah I, I couldn't agree more and i think it takes the chair or the president to be the person watching for that you know is is what's actually happening um in line what we say we stand for what we say we're going to try to do in terms of strategy um and how we reward and punish people and i'll be watching that the ceo is doing the same and you know you'd love to think every board member is thinking the same way but the truth is they're not usually falls on the chair to to firstly look at that within the boardroom but you sort of look beyond the boardroom too as to how that's uh, following through into the rest of the organization no i agree yeah leslie it's very rare i have a conversation with somebody that i agree with absolutely everything they say <laughs> <laughs> but that has occurred here so um i want to thank you so much for joining me tonight you are truly one of the best chairs i've ever seen um, Leslie Blythe, Master and Commander of Board Chairmanship. Thank you so much for joining me in the Register Room. It's been a joy. Hey, amateur soccer club leaders. Are you looking for a complete reference on how to run a great amateur soccer club, but all you can find are books on how to coach kids? Introducing Amazon's number one bestseller, Don't Blame Your Soccer Parents, your complete guide on how to run a successful amateur soccer club covering everything from managing your boardroom to overseeing your director of coaching or raising corporate sponsorship. Based on real-world experiences from internationally renowned sports consultant and professional speaker Paul Berry, 
Don't blame the soccer parents who rolls its sleeves up and tackles all the hands-on club management issues you need to master. Governance, planning, staffing, volunteers, finance, technical oversight, marketing, evaluation, and more. You'll find it all in the most comprehensive soccer club management reference on the market today. Pick up your copy on the Amazon platform or at don'tblamethesoccerparents.com today. Imagine not having the chance to play sports as a kid. Imagine not having those memories, those experiences. Imagine your childhood without them. If I wasn't able to play, I would have missed my friends. I will miss being active and the chance of being competitive. Basketball has taught me how to work as a team, how to co communicate, and how to adapt to any situation. My goal it is to play for Team Canada and make it to the WNBA. The skills kids learn through sports are carried with them throughout their lives. But all across Canada, kids are being left on the sidelines because they don't have the resources to play. We owe all kids a chance to experience everything that sport has to offer. Help unleash the full potential in every child. Visit kidsport.ca so all kids can play. Welcome back to the Register Room. Paul Varian here. Delighted to be with you as always. So my next guest brings a true wealth of knowledge and experience in making boardrooms tick. Mark Thompson is Chief Engagement Officer of Strategic Human Resource Management Consulting firm McKinley Solutions. Now, for years, Mark's been working on the human side of boardroom betterment, focusing heavily on the selection and development of great existing or potential board leadership to build powerful, effective boards. And getting back to what I mentioned earlier in this podcast about boards being made up of people, not policies, Mark dedicates himself to recruiting, developing, coaching, and even evaluating boards and the people in them. Aside from working in the corporate sector, it was with corporate sector organizations, should I say, Mark works heavily in the sports world, working with amateur soccer, or amateur sports clubs, associations, governing bodies in sports like rugby, basketball, golf, swimming, skating, ringette, cycling, and many more. I'm proud to call him a business partner and a friend of mine, having collaborated with him on many sport development projects and new ventures too. I invited Mark over for a coffee the other morning and told him I wanted to have a broad chat about making sport boards better. We ended up having a long, compelling discussion, which inevitably graduated to board leadership, but also touched on many issues besides. Coming up now, a wonderful opportunity to get great advice on how to build your sport board from one of the best minds out there on the topic. So strap yourselves in, maybe grab a coffee yourself and enjoy my conversation with Mark Thompson. Mark Thompson, it is so great to be having a coffee with you in the register room. Good morning to you, sir. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to chatting. Well, you know, um, I'm excited to do this. Uh, we're going to chat for a while. On, I'm not sure if it's our favorite topic, but it certainly consumes a lot of our time. <laughs> You know, both of us are involved in work in the in the sport business that involves a lot of problem solving and investigation stuff as to what's going wrong with an organization that might be way downstream. It might shake out in service or programs or workflow or things like that. But when we start the work, it's amazing how often we end up in the boardroom, isn't it? Doesn't matter where you start, you end up back in the boardroom, in my opinion. Why is that? Well, the in fact, I had a chat on the drive here with two presidents, and both conversations led to 
the reminder that they own the strategic leadership of the business and they own the governance of the business. Right. The operational excellence of the business is run by the operational leads. But unless they're spending time on deciding their strategic direction and implementing proper governance, yeah. the operations don't know what they're trying to achieve. Yeah. So it's, it does, to me, flow back up on a regular basis. But again, the starting point could be a whole variety of things. Yeah. I mean, it does often come back to just rigorous respect for this bright red line, right? Between Correct. the governing side of the organization, the operational side. That flows both ways, I might add. Absolutely. I've seen CEOs get far too involved in board business. Well, it's funny you say that. One of the pieces that we've had over the last couple of years on uh, not-for-profit boards, both in sport and outside of sport, is... Over the last two years, admittedly, both operations and boards have said um, we've had to cross the line or we felt like we've had to cross the line during COVID to add extra resources or be there to mitigate risk. Yeah. And the dialogue now is with the strong boards and the strong operational leads is how do we make sure that line is very definitive again moving forward? Yeah. But admittedly, they've, they've said we've, we felt we had to from a risk side of things, from a talent side of things to get involved, but you're seeing them start to back out to get back to what it should. Yeah, I've, I've actually heard a lot of stories from, from clubs in particular who said their relationships with um, between the executive director or technical lead or whoever, and the board has gotten stronger over this period of crisis. Now that might be that, as you sort of suggested, the traditional model of governance and operations and oversight has kind of gone out the window. It's been more of a crisis management model, uh, but they seem to be getting on better as a team than before. They do, and I think that's the that was the word one of them used uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, uh, it was a vice president. They actually put together a COVID task force, right? And their their sole responsibility was to source talent within the volunteer pool to help on a reactionary basis to what was required during COVID over the last two years. Fantastic. Yeah, it was a really good model. I mean, you've worked with loads of boards, Mark, and it's great to have you on because you don't obviously just work the sports space, but you do work private clubs too, a lot with the golf, golf industry and not-for-profit, a lot of trade associations as well Correct. as commercial business. You know, what makes a good board member? And do you think there's a difference in that skill set between a commercial board and, a, and a, I guess, a not-for-profit board in sport? Our experience, actually, there's a training session we did about a month ago, and it was I, I asked not to know who had been on corporate boards and who had been on uh, who had been on volunteer boards and who had never been on a board before. Yeah, because the the question was asked, going, it would be interesting to see what level of training we they needed, and so we did a bit of our orientation 101, and through that dialogue, uh, it was hard to tell the active. Um, not-for-profit board directors right? and the corporate board of directors, but it was very apparent the ones that had never been on a board okay. before. And the, my argument is, no, you, sh you mean, quite frankly, the legal responsibilities are the same thing. Yes. Expectations are the same thing. Uh, in fact, I think there's probably more pressure, in my opinion, on a not-for-profit board, especially when it comes to the sports side of things, because you then you're on the board for probably personal reasons. Your kids mm -hmm. are involved, some avenue in that regard. And where we we're, and we'll get into this, I'm sure a little bit later, is the ones that struggle forget to take their parent hat off mm -hmm. when they're making board decisions. And that to me is a big, big challenge. For so the temptation of conflict of interest is just too tangibly close, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, th I think the other thing that's interesting and important to note is most boards have to be sourced from their membership. 
Correct. So they're structurally in conflict of interest Absolutely according to the bylaws. So they can't necessarily go out and find independent directors. But those organizations that can, um, they, they are really effective. I mean, there's some people who very passionately believe that the only people who should be, for example, in an amateur soccer boardroom should be what they call, quote unquote, soccer guys. Correct. And like, yeah. Well, firstly, what the heck is a soccer guy? Exactly. Right. Um, I'm assuming what you mean by that is you have some sort of tacit knowledge of the game. But that does not a great director you make um, if you don't have an understanding of the fiduciary responsibility no. or, or, ha or have no, you're completely blind to all the policies in the organization or how safe sport operates or risk is and all these things. I mean, you can convert, right, that soccer guyism, to use their term, yes, um, to be effective if you, if you rampart it with robust development and Correct. training, right? To me, in that first year, uh, that onboarding of a board member is not a one-time deal. It's it's anywhere from six, nine, twelve months of yeah. sharing information and knowledge over a period of time, and they get stronger over time, and they get more confident over time. Yeah. But too often, it's oh yeah, we did board training, and yeah. it was ninety minutes, and you know, at sixty minutes, the wine was poured or something. Well, like well, that. well, you make the very good differentiation between uh, onboarding and orientation, right? Correct. And I'd argue that most boards' idea of onboarding is in fact just a transactional. Here's the water cooler type orientation rather than skills based training um, and proper knowledge transfer you need for, for, for a proper board. If you're wondering what this noise is, guys, it's my dog who's insistent on trying to get Mark to throw her tennis ball, but it's not going to happen at least for the next few minutes. Um, uh, go ahead. And so, no, we, we use that distinction quite a bit, both in our corporate work and in our not for profit work uh, and our trade work. Orientation, we often refer to as the compliance-based training that's required. Yeah. What is required by law to do it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting because we just finished some strategic planning work for Rugby Ontario, which is the governing body for the sport of rugby here in the province of Ontario in Canada. And what was fascinating, what I'm very enthused about with them, is we spent an enormous amount of time um, at the board's direction talking about values and culture. Mm -hmm. And they, before we even got involved, spent about a year doing a lot of outreach. So they had an enormous amount of information, almost too much information mm -hmm. from their stakeholder base as to what they wanted to see done. But when it came to writing strategy, they started very, very clearly from a very simplistic sort of hub and spoke type chart yeah. that defined not only values, but commitments that underline the values. And strategy, well, I wouldn't say it was the, the, the cherry on the top of the parfait, but it was very much like it fell out of the, the discussion Absolutely. that had been had quite easily uh, once, once the organization had established its culture. And when you take a sport like rugby, which is undergoing a lot of change, um, because it has to. Correct. Um, there's the modern acceptability of sport and, and what it looks like and, 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 and risks associated to it. It's one of those sports that has to change. I'm really enthused by what they've done, and the executive, the CEO, is very, very excited to drive this culture now across the whole organization, into the staff, into the affiliate base, and move from there, you know? No, absolutely. The piece that I find interesting with that statement is we recently did a search for uh, an ED of another PSO, and one of the things that the board, uh, when, we, when we got engaged about a year ago now, um, <clears throat> we asked, what were the values? And board members are like, not sure. They've got to be on our website. They've got to be on it. They sh yeah. You haven't looked on our website? And no, they weren't on the website. And new, the, the new uh, present CEO is in, and within the first quarter, 
they've done outreach to the membership, they've got values, they've said these are tentative while we go through the season that's upcoming. But we, they felt that that was the starting point of the operational anchor decisions that they needed this year. Yeah. And they're about to undergo marketing changes. They've, they're increasing staffing. They're changing staffing. Not changing in and out people, but they're doing collaborative-based roles with their NSO. But if they didn't anchor that in the value side of things, then how, how are the operational leads making the decisions? Yeah. And how does the board know that it's rein, that the operational team is reinforcing the direction they want to go in? Yeah. Want to tell us what you think of the show and things we could do to make it better? Tell us now at comments at registaroom.com. We're in the Regista Room having a pretty damn fine cup of coffee here with Mark Thompson from Strategic Human Resource Management Consultancy. McKinley Solutions, also a great partner for us at Capus Consulting. We've done a number of jobs together and continue to do so. Mark, I often hear this. I'm sure you do too. Well, we... We don't want to put pressure on our board members because we can't get them anyway. And we're afraid they'll resign and, you know, it's just hard enough to get them to commit to the minimum amount of, of, of work. So all of this development stuff and onboarding, there's no way we get anyone to come forward if you made them do that. What do you say? Well, I see first off is, uh, and I, I've done, I did this recently with a, with, with a client. I said, so how much is time is it actually to commit to a board member? And, you know, there was a newer board member uh, on the call. And he says, well, if I look at the people that came before me, like, you know, they're semi-retired or they're, you know, they own their own business. They can control their own schedule. And this gentleman was like panicked. He said, I felt I had to step up because it was, you know, it was the right thing to do. And when we actually walk through, okay, you're a member at large. You need to do this amount of board meetings. You need to sit on this committee. You need to sit on one committee. So we did the math. We literally, in a meeting, pulled up our spreadsheet and said, okay, if you're a board director at large, it's eight hours a quarter or, or seven or eight hours a quarter. I forget what the exact number was. He's like, oh, I can do that. He says, but, but why was the guy before me in this role doing 24 hours a month? Right. Because they chose to. Yeah. So when people sign up for a board member, let alone a, an executive position on the board, they, they don't know what they're signing up for a lot of the time. So for us around the education side of it, it's we've actually embedded that, that in the eight hours per quarter, one of those will be making you a better board member. Yeah, it's a good idea. One of the things I can't stand, and it's very, very uh, common in, in not-for-profit sport board structures, and it sort of speaks to them being very operationally focused, is giving operational titles to the directors. So I'm the director of marketing. What it does is it, it's scary, right? Totally. And it makes the board member feel their job is to be operationally focused. But what you've outlined is if you're quite disciplined and vigilant about keeping the board in a governing role and its chief focus is really assessment, analysis, decision making, it shouldn't be that much time. No. Right? I think where people get these boards spend a lot of time and maybe waste a lot of time is, is, is permitting facilities and selecting coaches and doing all the operational stuff that shouldn't be done. Now, before you say to me, well, what if there's no staff? You can set up an executive committee to manage that stuff, right? Just keep it out of the boardroom. Correct. Oh, yeah. If you're a smaller base club and you have to get operational, <clears throat> if volunteers are required to run your club, I have no problems with that. But to me, they sit at a committee or a task force level, and it's very purposeful in what their job is and their job is not. But when you confuse it at the board level, right. then that 
ties the hands of board members and weighs them down on every board meeting is now three hours versus one hour. Every decision's in there. It just becomes a big dog's breakfast of everything. Absolutely. The other thing is cost. I mean, you know, and as you know, recently at Capitus, we've just introduced, we're releasing right now a whole series of e-tutorials that are geared to providing, you know, online education for board members on a in a sort of a, uh, an online on-demand way that's very affordable. And there's lots of things like it out there. So there are affordable solutions out there as well, right? Absolutely. Interesting you say that. On the, on the drive to get together for coffee today, I had a client reach out to me and said, I know we're going to be doing board training coming up, but I saw on LinkedIn that you shared um, uh, the tutorial around boards. And they asked if, hey, would it be a good idea if we watch that as well? For the price point, Mm. I said, well, it's up to you on price point. You've already contracted us to do the actual training. And they said, yeah, but if we buy access to that, then when I get a new board member that's a replacement because someone had Mm. to step off, I don't need to bring you back in and we can just continue with our annual development on Mm. program the the stuff that we're doing. And they thought, what a great way to shore them up quickly at a a right price point when you've got turnover mid-season. Well, that's the whole point of it, right? Is that, you know, you know. We both do in-person Correct. consulting for Absolutely. boards in this space, and I would never suggest that's unnecessary. But, you know, you're right. A lot of clubs would say, well, I get a new board member. I can't bring in a consultant just for one person. I wouldn't recommend it. No. So you've got these online courses are there to bring you up to speed on all the basic things you need to know. Uh, $40 for a week-long rental, that's pretty affordable for Absolutely. most organizations. Absolutely. So the point is, I guess, there's a combination of solutions out there, right? And... You know, I, I, I worry that boards sometimes just feel scared of this stuff because they think it's only for GE or only for Ford Motor Company or only for big Fortune 500 companies that can invest in this sort of stuff. It's not necessarily true. Why don't more boards evaluate themselves? Are they scared of what they're going to look at? But I would say the best in class do evaluate themselves and it doesn't have to cost you anything. I was yeah. talking to a longtime chair that you know as well on the West Coast. And they went out and they said, well, we need to evaluate ourselves. Uh, And Google can give you everything. They came up with six different versions of board evaluations. They picked which one they liked. And they had a good, solid conversation on what it was. Yeah. Uh, The piece that I think, uh, why they don't do it, yeah, cost is one, time's another. But I also think it's people are afraid to ask a volunteer, you're signing up for something. And we do want to be better next year than we were this year. And that means all members. Do you, do you think it's just a fear as well that, you know, I don't, again, I don't want to say something critical of you, fellow board member. And if I do, and if, if, if we do our valuation and it comes out that we're a D minus, yep. will the board just all march out of the room and quit in floods of tears? Because the, is, is that the sort of the residual um, back of the mind concern? What uh, this might show? Yeah. It's a yes and answer in the sense that, yes, that's a lot of the case. Uh, And then I've also gotten pushback recently. Uh, We actually just won some work to do a board evaluation, not in sport, in a not-for-profit. And um, it took them a while to get it across the line, but it was more around, well, why do we need to do that? You know, we've been elected. Does that mean if, if it comes out bad, we have to quit? No. Hmm. And just the, about betterment. Just about getting better. Yeah. If you're there to represent, I think they've, uh, <coughs> their, their membership is about a thousand people. Okay. And, you know, but the perception of three of them was so what if it says we suck? Yeah. And so the vice president who's brought me in said, yeah, but we suck anyway. 
So why don't we actually learn where we can be better? Yeah. And I think that for me, that's the big piece of if you can get a few enlightened board members that go, it is about getting better. Not about punishment. Not about punishment. And yeah. that's where you see, actually, if I put on my HR hat for a, while, for, for, for a moment is... This element of taking it away from performance management and talking about performance development. Yeah, yeah. In an athletic world, we talk about performance development all the time. That's you right. set goals and targets. Yeah. As an op- the this operationalizing the business, we do it sometimes. At a board, we do it very little in yeah. sport. Yeah. But if you take it down to the athlete level, oh, their targets, time. their seasons, their their off season, their their peak seasons, yeah. their competitions. So why is it so easy to understand at an athlete level, but by the time we get to the board, it's like, meh, we're okay. I'd also argue coming back to sort of culture and and, and the sort of attitude you want in your boardroom. In my experience, high performers thrive on evaluation. They want to know how they're doing. So, you know, you can kind of separate the wheat from the chaff. If you've got people who don't want to be evaluated and they're hiding in the corners because they know what's going to come up, do you really want them on your board? Now, again, don't tell me about the fact that it's them or no one else, because I find if, if the word gets out of board is a is a professional place where you can grow and develop and achieve things. You'll get more people. People come out of the shadows, Mark, don't yeah. they? We did a lot of work with one club where we just we, we actually trained, educated the board on how to do the tap the person on the shoulder to say, hey, you've got some experience in your day job on this. We could really use you on a task force or we could really use you on a committee. Start small. Yeah. And the whole thing was build the bigger base. Yeah. But what do we do with the executive team? We just said, we taught them how to, all joking aside, we said, we need you to listen better when you're waiting to pick up your kids. Yeah. So when you have that person that says, yeah, I'm in this, you know, our legal team is really struggling with that. Oh, my ears go, wait a Mm. second, governance committee. Yeah. And then I hear someone that says, hey, I just got promoted in an HR job or, you know, oh, wait a second, HRC. So when you start to hear those conversations, you don't want to become the, you know, the the piranha going after all the volunteers. But as you have those social dialogues, parent to parent, they're like, I can give you 10 hours a month. Bring bring them in. I mean, that's where these committees could be so effective is that they are training grounds for board members. And, and great opportunities to incrementally get people involved because no one's diving onto the, the standing committee for HR, right? <laughs> you know, um, having never volunteered for the organization before. They want to test the water before they jump in. Nor do you want them. 100%. And, and it, I, I laughed when you said, you know, it's the training ground. I want my board members to be two to three years in committees before yeah, yeah. they get to the board level. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, but further to that, we, we have a couple of not-for-profits right now that have said, we actually want to start doing the board introductory training, board 101 training. Uh, we want to do it at a committee level, not because they're on the board member board yet, but we want them to be aware of what the board responsibilities are, the operational responsibilities are. And so they're edu- we're educating them two or three years before they actually get yeah. on the board. Yeah. Again, that takes an enlightened team. But when we, we, we didn't make the recommendation. We got, the comment came in the debrief from a board training going, man, this would have been great to know this two years ago when I was on a committee. Yeah. The, 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 other, the other point, there's, there's a great not-for-profit guru by the name of Joan Gary. And Joan's done a lot of work in, in broader not-for-profit, particularly um, you know, not necessarily sports not-for-profit. Um, and she's got a great book on not-for-profit leadership. And one of the points she makes that I totally agree with is when you're looking for looking for volunteers in any way, but particularly board members, don't beg. Don't, don't say, 
please do this. We really need you. It's only X number of hours a week. You're immediately setting up the position of what you're asking to be A, unpalatable and not fun. Well, it's a yes-no answer. It's a yes-no answer, but it's also, it's a, okay, I'll put up with it. Rather than, this is an opportunity for you, and Joan talks about being a privilege to serve, and she's 100% right. And the not-for-profit work that I, um, the volunteer work that I do and have done and continue to do, Mark, I've really enjoyed it. You know, we do a whole tutorial on this, by the way, the e-tutorials. I'm plugging the e-tutorials again here, guys. But we do a whole one on modern sport volunteerism where we talk about a lot about this idea that, and you've explained it very well. A lot of these great volunteers and board members are walking right past you every day. You just haven't got your head up to listen to it. Totally. Start them. Anyone who's got any kind of vested interest in your club has a role, even if it's on this committee. If they're even not strategically minded, they may sit on your executive committee if you don't have an executive (laughs) director. The more involved, the better. You know, um, okay. I'm going to test you here now. Yes. Bana- banana skins. Okay. Three banana skins. What are the top three banana skins that uh, you should watch out? Sort of board bewares. Watch out for what board should be very careful about um, uh, in avoiding and in running a good board. Allowing personal agendas to come to the top. Yeah. That would be a big one. Because again, there's nothing wrong in being passionate and volunteering and being passionate for your kids' success. Um, I mean, that's why you're. That's why you put up your hand. And I, well, I'd argue, Mark, on that one because that's that's probably the that's a huge bloody banana. That yes. one. I mean, there's banana skins all over the place in boardrooms on that one. Yeah. Um, and as we discussed, part of it's because you're 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 structurally made to be in conflict. Totally. But sometimes I wonder whether people don't realize they're doing it. Some of it's subconscious. You almost have to manage that very actively, don't well, you? Well, that goes back to those non-negotiables that we talk about. So yeah. The community sport ones. We actually say you know, this aspect that we are here for the full organization. And by doing the non-negotiable concept, you allow peer-to-peer accountability on I'm doing it or not doing it. And when you see that when one, it doesn't always fall to the chair to point out that somebody's offside on the, um, on their decision. The other piece is um, I sign up and then I do nothing. Oh, yeah. So what, like when you mm. sign up and that you're not, you don't do what you agreed to do, then it puts the rest of the, it puts pressure on the rest of the board. Well, I, I, I do lecturing, as you know, for the technical director's diplomas up here in Canada in soccer. So we, we spend a lot of time teaching technical leads, sporting, you know, per, per personnel coach leads on, you know, the basics of, uh, of, of how to do things like work with the board. And one of the things I ask them is what's worse? A volunteer that isn't very effective or a volunteer that signs up and then doesn't do anything. Oh, the latter. And they all say the latter. Yeah. Like it's because you think you've got a resource covered and you find out no. you know, too late that you don't. Third banana skin. I don't know. Let me think about that one. <laughs> do you have one while well, I think? It would be just checking out of active management and development of your operational component. So whether that's staff or whether it's an executive committee, um, you know, there's so much time wasted in boardrooms. We've discussed it over this this coffee today. Um, And so much inefficiency and frustration with boards chasing the wrong cats and and not doing the right things they need to do around checks and balances around staff. The number of boards I've seen who just consume themselves in operations, but the executive director doesn't have an employment contract. Right. Like it's phenomenal. All the time. So, so that that kind of thing, just understanding that you're you know you're there as a, as a as a body of oversight, 
and oversee. You know, look what the great term I, 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 I've heard many times is, you know, noses in, fingers out. Yes. Right? So you're, <laughs> yeah. you're there to check, make sure the systems are in place, make sure the checks and balances and controls are in place, uh, evaluate and oversee your people, manage, watch risk very carefully, make sure capital deployment's in line with strategy, uphold your values, uphold your values, uphold your values, um, and you're doing a job as a board. You prompted the last banana, another banana skin that I would share, is the opposite, where we have uber volunteers in all tentacles of the operations, mm-hmm. but, I, but I would actually pinpoint one specific piece that I think, well, I know drives operations nuts, is you got a board of nine, there's seven people talking to operations as opposed to the flow of communication yeah. going through one person. Yeah, that's where the chair becomes very important. And if the chair's not the right person, they designate somebody to be the voice. But yeah, this, this idea of, of dropping below um, the bright red line and multiple communication with multiple staff and multiple board members. One organization I went into as a, as a CEO, it took me about three months to tidy that up. Oh, and it involved removing. It involved doing, involved doing things like removing email addresses for board members yeah. uh, on the website and things like that because yeah. they were they were just getting pinged with all kinds of chaos and just tightening it all up. You know, the operational leads are sitting there going, "Mark, but director at large just asked me to do this. Director at large asked me to do this. But the the vice president of finance is concerned about this, and I haven't heard from the president in two weeks because they're in Portugal. The operational leads are sitting there going, "What? What am I supposed to do?" So again, if there's no strategy, you're just reacting to people's That's opinions. That's right. You are. And but sooner or later, you're going to get crushed to death as the executive director. You get it director. wrong. Yeah. And and that's not fair to you. That's not fair to the organization. That's not fair to you as the operational lead. And look, go ahead. One small example on that one. We work with a team just north of Toronto for a while, and we, we we've just we'll be doing some work again this year with them. But for a variety of reasons, there were some operational changes, uh, and the board kept getting skinnier and skinnier. And what they started to do was. They got the right people in the right seats on the operational bus. Then they started to share what the board was doing commitment-wise to strategy and goals and objectives. And all of a sudden, they actually had more volunteers for board than they had collectively in the last four years. Yeah, I've seen that happen So once they started to own the narrative of what we're doing and why we're doing it, as opposed to just going, hey, we need volunteers, they literally had more volunteers for the board for the first time in something like seven years than they've ever had. Yeah, because the, the, the thing in this mark we should never overlook is, particularly, you know, when you're talking about organizations that have some sort of performance programming where the kids are, are, are training, you know, four, five, six times a week. Oh, yeah. And the parents are spending, you know, at the very least high hundreds, but very often thousands of dollars a year. Mm-hmm. The, the parents want the club to succeed. They're, they're, they're all in. So it's not like you've got people who don't have motivation no. to see the organization succeed. Um, as we've discussed, I think it's a matter of how you approach them, what support you give them, um, and and making them very clear on what you're asking them, and more importantly, what they're not asking. You're not Correct. asking them. Yeah. No, that's an important point, too. Well, Mark, it is our coffee cups are empty, my friend. <laughs> it's been another wonderful discussion with you, and um, certainly those people who would like to hear more from Mark and and certainly who, anyone who needs help in and around the boardroom in the areas of strategic human resource management, you should contact McKinley Solutions. They are a committed, trusting, and wonderful business partner of myself and ourselves at Capitalist Consulting. 
Uh, so feel free to, to get in touch with Mark um, and he will be able to help you out, I'm sure. But uh, in the meantime, Mark, thank you so much for joining me in the register room. Dog, uh, coffee and all that was here today. Um, and we will definitely catch up with you soon. Right. Thanks for the time. Thanks for the opportunity. And I hope everybody enjoyed. Need help managing your amateur sport organization but don't know where to turn? Look no further than Capitus Consulting, your dependable partner to help you through the challenges and issues you routinely face in and around your sport boardroom. At Capitus Consulting, we're different. We've directly managed amateur sport organizations from community club to national governing body. We understand your side of the fence because we've been there ourselves. We know from experience what makes sport organizations successful and where they go wrong. Reach out to us today at capitusconsulting.ca and let's start building your sport business today. So a lot to cover there in that caffeine-laden chat with Mark Thompson, who you can connect with, by the way, at mark at mckinleysolutions.com, McKinley with a K. Like Mark, I've made it my professional business to try to improve sport boardrooms with the firm belief that success there bounces into a sport organization's staff, volunteers, programs, and ultimately its overall performance and success. But I'll admit to you, I do sometimes feel dismayed when I find myself delivering the same governance, presentations, lectures, and teachings that I did 15 years or so ago. Now, of course, I respect that boards turn over, volunteers come and go, as do professional staff, and the thirst for governance education can never be truly quenched. But it does feel sometimes that the system isn't learning. Is the amateur soccer system doing a poor job of accruing brain trust and knowledge, and as such not developing as quickly and sustainably as it could? If so, I put this largely down to the amateur soccer system just not taking its boardroom volunteers seriously enough. Speak to a random community youth soccer club, throw them a few thousand dollars in cash and ask them what they're going to spend it on. Doubtless, they will spend it on some team tournament trip or other program cost. Some may even consider giving it back to the parents in a form of a marginal but obviously unsustainable fee decrease. Virtually none, or probably none at all, will consider investing in their board, as Mark Thompson so clearly outlined they should with me just now in this podcast. Prioritize your board. It's not a waste of money. It's how the great clubs always seem to have a habit of staying great. They always have plenty of volunteers, great staff who love to work where they work, access to amazing facilities, strong balance sheets, and impressive athletic results year after year. Above all, they know who they are, what they stand for, and are proud to be part of it. All of this starts in the boardroom. And if it doesn't start there, the club just becomes a chaotic mess of subcultures, driven by local pockets of leadership, usually individual coaches, rather than the club itself. And some of this local leadership can be rogue. A strong, sustainable board of excellence is the best thing you can accomplish if you want an amateur soccer club that can produce results consistently and sustainably. The pandemic has shown us that the true role of the board has never been more important. So build your board. Make a post-pandemic resolution to take your board more seriously and write this commitment into strategy. Commit resources to it. Assign personnel to identify new board leadership in your membership and recruit it. Budget to onboard and develop it. 
Bring an expertise if necessary to evaluate and improve it. Nurture your board. It's truly one of your amateur soccer club's greatest assets. And finally, if you're not involved yourself, get in there and give it a try. Board business isn't always boring or a chore. It can be fun, personally rewarding, and a fantastic means for your own personal and professional development. You'll be better at it than you think. The fact you're listening to this podcast shows you a board material. Bad boards would scoff at this podcast as a waste of time. Great board members are always looking for opportunities to learn, develop, benchmark and compare. I'm guessing you're one of them because you're here in the register room with me. So don't wait for others to build board leaders. Get in there and be one yourself. You're listening to Paul Varian, and you're in the Register Room, the podcast where amateur soccer goes off-field. It's been a pleasure being with you for this episode. Thanks for joining me. And until the next one, stay safe and well. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Register Room, where amateur soccer goes off-field. Join us again for the next episode. Subscribe today at capituslearning.com or listen wherever you access your favorite podcasts.